0: And hello from Idaho Education News in Boise, Idaho. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education politics and education policy. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And it's another week in the life of Draft 6, the latest version of the state's plan to comply with the Federal Every Student Succeeds Act. You are in some long hearings this week, (laughs) Clark, as uh, some key players tried to make sense of the 76 pages that are draft 6
1: what happened spent a lot of quality time with draft 6 on monday and <laughs> tuesday there were we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks but there have been several groups of idahoans who say as we get closer and closer to this important federal deadline in september that they have no idea what is in the state's esa plan that they weren't consulted and asked to help uh, draft it and they don't understand what it does. Uh, That really has been a theme uh, since late 2016, where educators and policymakers and different groups have said, we don't know what's going on here. And so there were a series of meetings, uh, unusual meetings, held earlier this week here in Boise. And uh, when we talk about ESSA, I think most of our listeners and readers know we're talking about Idaho's plan to comply with the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. That was the late 2015 education law passed by Congress, signed by then-President Obama, shifting control and oversight of public schools away from the federal government and the bureaucrats in D.C. towards the states at the local level. Uh, This plan is important because this is how Idaho is identifying how it's going to comply with that plan, and there's required to be a school accountability plan in there. Idaho has not had any kind of statewide or federal school accountability plan uh, since 2014 and this is also essentially Idaho's application to receive and spend and implement about 83 million dollars in federal funding annually and a lot of that money goes to programs for students with disabilities and students who are English language learners. And so that's the background and the context with ESSA.
0: Right, and and we've talked about this before. I mean, this isn't a paperwork exercise. I mean, there's a lot of policy here and a lot of dollars at stake. So this is a big deal.
1: It's really going to govern how our schools are run and and held accountable for the foreseeable future. And so we've got all these education groups, notably the Idaho Education Association and the Idaho Schools Boards Association, that said, hey, we're getting close to this deadline. We don't know what's going on. We've been kept in the dark. They had a day-long meeting on Monday with staffers from both the State Department of Education and the State Board of Education. Uh, And I'm not exaggerating when I say we're going through this plan page by page and line by line. At one point, they spent three hours just to get through 10 pages on Monday, and they're wrestling with individual word choice. They found aspects of the plan uh, that were... Uh, statements that were not true. At one point in the beginning of the plan, it talked about how all assessment tests in Idaho are offered in Spanish as well as English. That's not true. Uh, So that's got to go out of there. Um, Educators spent a lot of time debating some of the goals that are attached to this ESSA plan. And the goals have to do with student achievement and student growth, proficiency levels. Uh, One of the big Aspects of the ESSA plan is setting goals to cut the they call them gaps in in proficiency Mm -hmm. scores, gaps in achievement. And uh, several educators raised
0: some real eyebrows. Yeah,
1: those raised some real eyebrows among educators and uh, State Representative Ryan Kirby, who's a member of the House Education Committee and a retired school superintendent, who said it doesn't make any sense to send the federal government a goal saying that we're gonna raise um, students with disabilities' proficiency levels from an average of 6% to 56% mm-hmm. over six years' time. He said the danger with that is it's an unrealistic goal, and everybody knows that, and you run the risk of having educators and education groups discount the goal because it's ridiculous on its face. Mm-hmm. And so, and we, you know,
0: the idea of unrealistic goals. I mean, this is something that uh, the state runs up against. I mean,
1: you know, when you, that was a big problem with No Child Left Behind. That was the previous federal education law, and that talked about getting to one hundred percent proficiency by two thousand twelve or two thousand fourteen. That didn't happen, and No Child Left Behind was not well loved. Uh, no, not at all. Especially not at the end. And uh, they're saying some of the red flags and problems with No Child Left Behind are going to creep into this new plan if we're not careful. So there's a lot of debate ongoing about the nature of these goals, uh, about the accountability plan for our schools, about how we're going to identify the lowest performing schools, how we're going to identify inexperienced and ineffective teachers. And um, where we stand right now is we've got two and a half months until we need to turn... This plan in. 16 states in Washington, D.C. have already submitted their plan to the federal government. And um, there's a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of debate about the appropriateness of goals and the methodology for uh, identifying low performing schools. And so, although the sixth draft just came out earlier this month, it's not going to be the last draft. Um, I think there are going to be changes made before the State Board of Education takes a look in August. And there are going to be changes made before it goes to the feds in September. I mean, notably, I had a conversation with Senate Education Chairman Dean Mortimer, a Republican Mm -hmm. from Idaho Falls. After the education groups took a look at this thing on Monday, Senator Mortimer and Representative Julie Van Orden called an extremely rare joint session of the House and Senate Education Committees. It's rare because it's summer and the legislature is not in session. I have not seen one of these joint education committee settings uh, during the seven years that I've covered the legislature, but I talked to Senator Mortimer about it. Keep in mind he's the chair of the Senate Education Committee. He said we called this meeting because he didn't know what was going on with the plan. He said we essentially went through the whole 2017 legislative session during the first three and a half months of this year without talking about the ESA plan, He said that he understood that state lawmakers needed to have eyes on this thing.
0: So here we were. We had this really unusual hearing in the middle of the summer about something that had been uh, discussed sort of on the fringes during the legislative session. I mean, I I bumped into a legislator from North Idaho the morning of the hearing, and uh, he didn't seem to be terribly excited about having to uh, come all the way down to Boise for a day of, of hearings about this. So i got to imagine that there's a little bit of angst amongst legislators about this at this stage, and I don't know if that's directed at uh, the State Department of Education or the State Board or or who they may be uh, concerned with or
1: or concerned about. That's a good point, and that was something that Representative Patrick McDonald, he's now the new vice chairman of the House Education Committee. He's a Boise Republican. Patrick McDonald addressed this very issue during the meeting. Uh, He said, how come... At no point have these two committees been brought up to speed on ESSA. He said, I really appreciate uh, Tuesday's meeting. It was beneficial to him. It helped him uh, wrap his arms around what's in the plan and what's going on. But he said, you know, quite frankly, I could have been better prepared uh, for this a year ago or earlier this year or whatever the case may have been. And so two groups of people responded, both uh, State Board of Education President Linda Clark, and she pointed out that With Donald, with President Trump taking office earlier this year and a new education secretary coming in, there was some confusion about whether this law would survive. There were rules that were created during the Obama administration that were scrapped Mm -hmm. by the Trump administration. And so Linda Clark said, you know what, the game was changed on us uh, as we were going along. And that confused us, and that held us back, uh, and... And we didn't reach out for as much public input and support as we could have. Duncan Robb, the chief policy offer for policy officer, excuse me, for Superintendent Ibarra's the State Department of Education, also said the, the same thing. We were scrambling to keep up with what was being asked of us and what the requirements were, and uh, the unintended consequence of that was we didn't get as much stakeholder input uh, as we could have or as we should have. And so they both apologized for that. But I want to point out that I wrote kind of a timeline story Mm -hmm. at the end of this week. And since late 2016, there have been prominent groups of educators, policymakers that have said, hey, we don't know what's going on. We're being kept in the dark. Uh, There's also been a series of deadlines, mostly self-imposed deadlines, but deadlines nonetheless, that Superintendent Sherry Ibarra has missed as we went through uh, this ESA process. And I do want to point out that despite the confusion, uh, despite the change in administration, uh, 16 states and Washington, D.C. did manage to uh, submit their completed plans Mm -hmm. to the feds in March. And they're still being reviewed. And those are still being reviewed.
0: So, long story short, I mean, your summer of ESA continues here because uh, now you're going to be following to see what happens with this document, what sort of rewrites uh, happen between now and, and September, What happens when this goes before the State Board of Education in August and what sort of document the the state ultimately winds up submitting to the feds by middle of September?
1: Yeah, this is a big project for me ongoing through September. We will keep you up to date on each step in the process. I'm also excited to unveil kind of a mini-series of articles starting in mid-July where I'm just going to take a small chunk of the ESSA plan and explain what it does. Uh, That's and good. Present, there's so much there. I yeah. mean, it feels like, you know, there, there's just so much
0: detail and, and so many implications for what's in this document. So,
1: I also so want to, to ask support. for help real quick. I know we have parents and educators and school administrators uh, who read our stories and listen to uh, our podcast. We want your help. Get in touch with me over email. Uh, or uh, send me a message on Twitter, and I'd love to talk to you about how ESA affects your school or your family or what questions you have at ESSA. And so I'm really hoping to hear from our readers and hear from our educators about how this affects them, but stay yeah, tuned. If you want
0: to read Draft 6, you know, we're always looking for an extra set of eyes here to look over Draft 6, so do be
1: bashful. A- we absolutely will, and that will keep me busy all summer. I want to shift gears and talk about... An out-of-state issue that could have potential implications for Idaho. Kevin, it's this pesky Blaine Amendment that we've Mm -hmm. talked about for several months now. It was an issue that came up in Idaho's most recent legislative session. (coughs) Pardon me. But tell me what the Blaine Amendment is and tell me why the U.S. Supreme Court was looking at a case in Missouri and how that could affect Idaho.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange that here we are talking about a case in Missouri that involved a playground at a church-run daycare, but a decision that may or may not have some very serious implications in terms of uh, religious schools and school voucher systems in 36 or so states around the country, including Idaho. So the case before the Supreme Court was uh, dealing with paving repaving a uh, a playground at a at a daycare uh, at a church in missouri the church in missouri wanted to get uh, get paving materials from recycled tires and they wanted to participate in this uh, state program and participate in, in in getting repaving materials through this state program uh, the state originally turned them down led to this long court case that eventually wound up going before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court on Monday, one of their last decisions of this term, ruled that the church in this case is eligible for a share of state funding for uh, to participate in this program. And I don't know if it's really state funding, but they they were eligible to participate in the state program right. that would allow uh, the repaving project uh, And it all goes back to the Blaine Amendment. Now, what is the Blaine Amendment? We throw that term around a lot. It is an amendment in state constitutions in about three dozen states, including Idaho. And what the wording of that amendment says, more or less, and it varies from state to state, is public dollars cannot be expended to support religious facilities. So that includes religious-based education. And In Idaho, that language, that restrictive language, has has pretty much forestalled any discussion of a voucher program, of a voucher system for education. It's a non-starter because the constitutional language is so restrictive. So now you've got this ruling, you've got this precedent from the Supreme Court regarding uh, funding or support of a religious institution. And now the question becomes, what does that ruling mean? In terms of religious education, and you know, guess what? We're talking about the law. We're talking about the Constitution. We're talking about constitutions in a lot of different states. So, if you want a legal opinion, everybody's got one, and they are widely varying. I mean, you know, some folks in the school choice community, obviously and, and predictably, are looking at this and seeing that this really opens the door. They see it as a great opportunity. Uh, they're hoping that it's going to press the issue of vouchers of uh, support for religious schools in the states. Those who are more skeptical about uh, a voucher system are saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't read the opinion at all that way. We think it's very narrow and it's focused only on a very narrow uh, program. In this case, you're you're just talking about paving a, a playground. So obviously legal opinions vary and there is no shortage of them. This is still a very thorny issue in Idaho and politically it's a very difficult issue to to do much of anything about because supreme court uh, ruling or no the amendment amendments got a good deal of institutional backing it's tough to amend the constitution you've got to get a two-thirds vote in both houses then you've got to go to the voters for ratification that's difficult to do and there are still folks around the state who really like that separation that 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 division between public funding and religious institutions. Uh, Governor Otter has uh, in the past said he doesn't think that the amendment uh, needs to be tweaked. House Speaker Scott Bedke has indicated that he would rather keep that separation in place. You've got the education groups, uh, the Idaho School Boards Association, the School Administrators Association, the Idaho Education Association, have all opposed efforts to tweak at this Blaine amendment in the past. So what happens now, what happens in the 2018 legislative session, and is that the venue where this goes on, or is there something that goes on in the courts? Really hard to say. But suffice it to say, this little playground in this uh, yeah. church in Missouri, and this case has been closely watched by uh, school choice advocates and school choice skeptics all over the country, this is a significant ruling, and it's one that had been on, on my radar over here for quite a while, so...
1: Now we see, we wait and see what happens next. Yeah, when I, just in real simple terms, when I think about the blame Amendment, I kind of think of it as the separation of church and state mm-hmm. clause. It, it, it's more complicated than that, but in basic terms, that's how I think of it. But real quick, did Sherry Ibarra um, have a chance to weigh in that? Did Sherry Ibarra say how she felt about
0: well, this? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I saw a comment from uh, Superintendent Ibarra on Monday when the ruling came down, and her... Her comment uh, that she uh, released through her spokesman was extremely noncommittal. I mean, it basically recited the, the constitutional pro- prohibition that's in place, the Blaine Amendment, the Idaho's version of the Blaine Amendment, and said, as superintendent, I'm bound to uphold the Constitution. She has been very, very reluctant to even raise an opinion one way or the other about whether she thinks the Blaine Amendment should stay on the books or not. And worth noting, we we ran a guest opinion last week from Wayne Hoffman of the Idaho Freedom Foundation. The Freedom Foundation has been really uh, in favor of vouchers and in favor of school choice, taking uh, Superintendent Navarro to task for being noncommittal and slow to move on school choice issues. Make no mistake about it. This is going to be an election issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the, even if the Blaine Amendment is never really seriously... Addressed at the legislature in 2018. Even if it's difficult to to go at it, even if this leads to a long legal battle in Idaho, I don't know how it's going to play out. But I do know this much: this is going to be something people ask about on the campaign trail. I've got to think that uh, Superintendent abar is going to have to stake out a position on this. Her opponents in in, in the election, I'm sure, will stake out a position. I. I We don't know what the field is going to look like exactly, but uh, I think that this is an issue that uh, she can't duck forever.
1: Yeah, it's not going away. We're going to keep talking about the Blaine Amendment. Uh, It's going to follow us. uh, and There may be, like you said, election issues. There may be a court challenge in Idaho down the road. We don't know that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised, right? We just
0: know that this is a significant development in a story that is not going to go away anytime soon.
1: We'll continue to cover it. I, I know you'll continue to cover it. One more big topic Uh, this week that I want to get to. During the summer, school districts across the state are entering into negotiations uh, with their staff, with their teachers, oftentimes with their local bargaining unit of the Education Association. That goes on every year. You've had a chance to kind of check in with some different districts, uh, and there are a lot of implications to negotiations Uh, especially right now, Uh, but tell me a little bit uh, about your project and and give me a a case study or two from a district that you looked at.
0: Yeah, I kind of found myself focusing in on the Caldwell School District when I did this story, and and this is not a roundup of all 115 school districts, but it was a cross-section of what's going on around the state, and I was interested in Caldwell because we'd heard rumblings that the negotiations there were hitting some snags, and one of the big snags that I wrote about this week has to do with the career ladder and the implementation of the career ladder.
1: That's Idaho's massive 250 <laughs> yes. million dollar salary law. Yes,
0: Dragon Alert, you know, that that's what the career ladder is, but you know, this is the 5-year plan. And some districts are adhering to it to the letter and using it as a salary schedule. Others are just taking the money and spending it. Caldwell is one of those districts that wants to take the career ladder and use it as a salary schedule. And the superintendent Chalene French, when I talked to her this week, she said, you know, it is helping us uh, boost pay for new teachers, younger teachers, and that's the bulk of the teaching staff in Caldwell. Almost, uh, her estimate, about 80% of the teachers in Caldwell fall under the career ladder. But here's the rub, and we've talked about this before with the career ladder. What do you do with teachers that have been in the classroom longer, already make uh, a relatively uh, high salary for teachers, and get no benefit from the career ladder because all of the money and all of the raises are kind of front-loaded into the beginning of the uh, of the salary schedule that's the big snag right now in Caldwell you know under the career ladder most teachers in Caldwell would get raises of you know six percent maybe up to eleven percent depending on where they are on the scale but what do you do with those teachers at the top end of the scale uh what Caldwell is trying to do is try to carve out a little bit of money. It's really only about a 1.2% increase for those veteran teachers, and it's kind of outside of the career ladder. That's the concern with the members of the teachers' union out there. The concern is that you've created these two salary schedules. The more veteran teachers are at one schedule where they are making more money, and you have the career ladder teachers who are making less money, but maybe they're getting more raises early on but they hit the top of that career ladder and they're stuck. They can't get up to the second level. So the union is very concerned about creating this uh, bifurcated system where you've got these two different structures. So it's really not about dollars, the debate right now. It's really more about structure. But it's interesting because a lot of districts are having to deal with the implementation of this career ladder and how that works. And and as I did the project, and you can look at IdahoEdNews.org and get kind of a roundup from a bunch of districts around the state Some negotiations went very smoothly. Some went very quickly. Others, like Caldwell, have been more complicated. It was interesting. You know, one of the districts that I asked about was Sugar Salem. And I asked about Sugar Salem because their negotiations went well into October last year. They settled in one session. They managed to come up with an agreement really quickly, really easily, and uh, teachers are looking at raises in the 6% range, and they're on the career ladder. So they've figured out a way to make the career ladder work this year and get through the negotiations process smoothly. So Caldwell's kind of a little bit of a canary in the coal mine here. It's sort of an indication of what's going on around the state as districts try to figure out what to do with this money, but more importantly maybe, is to figure out how you build a structure that you know, sets out a, a plan for teacher salaries and teacher pay raises. So, interesting situation in Caldwell that I think is uh, illustrative of some bigger issues around the state.
1: It was a very appropriate district to look at. As you mentioned, each district is unique. Some went very smoothly. But throughout the state, and also at the state level, there are these debates about the appropriateness of raising beginning teacher salaries uh, and also taking care of our veteran teacher salaries—that's a debate we're hearing in many districts, and, and certainly at the state and, level. And in all
0: fairness, as I talked to Shalene you know, French, the superintendent, as I talked to one of the teachers who's on the uh, the union negotiating team, this does not strike me as a, a as a heated that there's a lot of animosity, that there's a lot of ill will between the uh, the two the two entities involved in the negotiations. I, I think that this. This strikes me as a, you know, a, yeah, a fairly serious but uh, you know fairly high planed discussion about well, how do we put this thing together? I, I don't feel like this this doesn't strike me as personal. And it's not been personal. It's business, but it is it is business and it is structure, and that's kind of where they're at. So anyway, to I go to to idolatnews.org and get caught up on what's happening around the state on the negotiations
1: front. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, That's a great story. Uh, A busy summer setting policy. That will continue all summer long, even though school is out. Uh, But that catches us up uh, with all of this week's top story, does it not? Right. That that gets us caught up with this
0: week. Now, as for next week, you will be on vacation. You will, I hope, not be... uh, on the a beach reading draft six, <laughs> rereading draft six with your yellow highlighter in hand. I mean, I hope you actually do take a break from ESSA. You'll be on vacation. Uh, you'll be catching up with some family and doing some traveling. I will be here manning the podcast. We will have a special guest uh, from Idaho Reports from Idaho Public Television. Seth O'Gilvie will join me. We'll have a discussion about summer politics and where things stand in the uh, in the looming election cycle as we take a little bit of break from education policy for the
1: holiday week. I'm looking forward to Kevin actually traveling to see my beloved Kansas City Royals, the 2015 World Series champion Kansas City Royals, play in Seattle and hang out with my brother over the 4th of July. Still I'm- living in that 2015 glory, right? You <laughs> yeah. know? Hey, uh, before that I was... I was uh, boasting about the 1985 World Series champion, oh, Kansas an City Royals. I'm a
0: fan, so I'm half living in 1989, so I can't really talk. What about those 2014?
1: What about that 2014 wild card game, oh, Kevin? Look, look, look at the time! This podcast is just flying by. All right, I have one challenge for you next week: keep extra credit under an hour with Seth on board. Do you think you can do it?
0: We always have the mute button. We always have the uh, the stop key uh, close at hand when Seth's around. But no, he, he, it'll be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to having him aboard as a as a guest.
1: All right. Well, as always, we really had a lot of fun here. Thank you so much for listening. Have a happy Fourth of July. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.